0: Welcome back, everyone, for the last week of The Last Enemy, the end of chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, the great resurrection chapter of the Bible. I have just loved going through this chapter of the Bible with you. I hope that you read it with some new eyes again. In fact, I would encourage you after this is done to go back and read the whole chapter and think through the whole argument and all the things that we've talked about in this series, because it gives amazing comfort to us as Christians to know that, first of all, what we believe is completely unique in the realm of religiosity in the world. And also to know that it's true because it really already happened in Jesus Christ. Um, So I pray that you've been blessed by this series and I hope that you just enjoy these last couple of verses. The church has historically, for hundreds of years in fact, read these words on Easter Sunday. Um, If you follow the historic one-year lectionary of the Lutheran Church, which is almost 500 years old, uh, you would read 1 Corinthians 15 verses 51 to 58 every Easter Sunday, That's how important the church thought these words were to its life and its doctrine. And so I am excited to share these with you. Uh, We're going to read from starting at verse 50, actually, all the way through the end of the chapter, verse 58. Paul writes, I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed Where, O oh death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because that you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. This is God's word. I'm sure it's a question that you've asked yourself. I know it's a question that I've asked myself. Do I even matter? It's a question we ask ourselves at all sorts of different stages of life too, isn't it? We might ask ourselves when we're broken up with for the first time. Do I really matter? Do I even matter to, to this guy or this girl just left me? Maybe it was a time you got fired. You thought to yourself, I was doing good work, I was faithful to my job, and they let me go. Do I even matter? Maybe it was a time where you had someone take advantage of you. You trusted somebody or you gave somebody something and they threw it away or or they used it wrongly or they betrayed you. And you thought to yourself, do I even matter? Maybe it's in a relationship with someone you love. You love them and you know they love you. But there's that one thing that you really hope they would change. But they aren't. And you wonder to yourself, am I nagging? Am I going too far? And then you wonder, do I even matter to them? Maybe you've asked this because you feel like no one is noticing you. Maybe it's that you can't get a date, or you can't get a job, or you can't get a raise, or you don't really seem to have as many friends or as many opportunities as other people. You start to wonder do I really even matter? Maybe you start looking at other people's lives and you you think they have it pretty good. What am I doing wrong? Then you wonder in this big mass of almost 8 billion people on the earth, I'm not much of anybody. Do I even really matter? It's a question we all ask ourselves regularly, and I'm sure it was a question that the Apostle Paul was asking himself as he thought about his friends from Corinth. If you don't know, Corinth was a city in the Mediterranean world. It was on an isthmus between the Ionian Sea and the Aegean Sea, and it was much bigger at the time that Paul wrote to it than it is today. Now, the city of Corinth still exists today, but at that time, it was a port of shipping and cosmopolitan multiculturalism because basically, if you wanted to get across from the Aegean Sea to the Ionian Sea, or vice versa, you went through Corinth. It was a place where ships were coming from all sorts of different places and eventually repackaging up and going other places, and because of that, just about everything you could want in the world was in Corinth. But despite the fact that Corinth was well off... And the Bible makes it pretty obvious to us. They were very blessed. The church in Corinth had all sorts of problems. You know, as Paul writes chapter 15, and he ends it with those beautiful words, your labor in the Lord is not in vain. I don't wonder if he was not thinking through the first 14 chapters of the book, where he laid out for that congregation all the ways that they were struggling, all the ways that they were sinning, all the ways that they were failing each other and failing God. I wonder if he wasn't thinking of the leaders of that church, of the pastors, and worried about them that they thought maybe their labor was in vain. They were wondering to themselves, do we even really matter? Do you remember all the things that that Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians? Permit me just to go through the book very quickly with you. In chapter 1 and 2, Paul writes that the church is divided because some people in the church think they're smarter than other people. In chapters 3 and 4, the church is divided, because some people like their former pastor more than their current pastor, while others like their current pastor more than their former pastor. In chapter 5, Paul talks about a man who's having sex with his stepmother, and no one seems to be doing anything about it. In chapter six, Paul writes that members of the congregation are suing one another and some in the congregation were preaching that sexual immorality was not just okay, but there was actually something you should do. In chapter seven, Paul addresses a whole host of issues with marriage. In chapter eight, he addresses people who were holding on to practices from their former religions. In chapter nine, He addresses that some people in the church thought that that their church was primarily about making themselves comfortable and making them happy and doing what they wanted rather than reaching out to those who don't know Jesus. Chapters 10 and 11, the congregation was divided about the doctrine of the Lord's Supper. Chapter 12, the congregation was divided because some people thought they were more valuable to the church than others and had more skills for ministry than others. Chapter 13, uh, Paul addresses that some people didn't trust the word of God. And in chapter 14, the church was divided about what to do in their Sunday morning worship. Wow. (laughs) I mean, just for a second, think, like, what would you do if you were a leader or a pastor in that church? How would you feel? Would you be excited to get up and do ministry the next day? I'm guessing there were some days when those leaders in that Corinthian church asked the question, do I even matter? Does what I'm doing actually change anything? Does it move the needle on the success or growth of this congregation in any way? I'm also guessing that that question was something Ernest Shackleton's men Do you know the name Ernest Shackleton? It's the early 20th century, 1914. Ernest Shackleton was an explorer who wanted to make a voyage to Antarctica. Uh, He put together a crew of men to go on this dangerous journey to explore Antarctica, but things did not go well. It turns out their ship, the Endurance, got caught in some of the ice packs and actually was crushed and sunk. All that those men had left on that Antarctic land were their lifeboats and their supplies. The problem, of course, was that no one was coming to save them, and there was no way to reach anyone with the news that their ship had been sunk. And so the men tried their best to travel across Antarctica to find a place where they could camp and then maybe eventually reach out for help. Well, Shackleton had a plan, he was going to get off the island and go find help. But with just a couple lifeboats, it wasn't worth trying to get all the men into those lifeboats, so Shackleton and a couple other men got in one of the lifeboats and set out for a 720 nautical mile journey from one of the tips of Antarctica to the island of South Georgia. As Shackleton went away from the island, he told his men to wait for him. Because he was going to come back. Can you imagine what those men were thinking? (laughs) Probably there was some hope after day one or two. But as they looked out at the scary, wave-filled seas, and day three, and day nine, and day 20, and day 30 passed, they started to wonder... Do I even matter? Is he even going to come back for me? If he doesn't come back for me, will anyone remember me? Does anyone out there care that I'm on Antarctica and I'm slowly dying from frostbite and malnutrition? It's a question human beings ask regularly because like we talked about last week, eternity has been put into our hearts by God. We have this built-in sense that we should cosmically matter, that our existence is purposeful and that there's an end goal, that we're trying to to achieve something. And the problem is from our sinful nature, we don't know what that is. From the Bible, we learn that it is to serve our neighbor and to trust God, but we can't know that from from our sinful nature. And, And so... Every human being strives for meaning in life to feel like they matter. Well, Paul shows us here in 1 Corinthians 15 that the answer to that question, do I matter, is unequivocally yes, absolutely. But as he has been showing through this entire chapter, that is completely dependent on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so what I hope to do today is walk you quickly through the chapter, or the last couple of verses, but then focus on his conclusion where he says, you, your labor in the Lord, what you are doing, it is not in vain. And then just dwell on those words for a while and show you how the resurrection of Jesus Christ makes sure that there is no, no possible way that you live without mattering. And that you can walk away from this Sunday completely convinced that you matter to God, And you matter to his church. So let's walk through those verses together. We're going to start with verse 51 and 52. Paul writes, listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. Just blink your eyes for a moment. That's how quick it's going to be. He says in a twinkling of an eye, but it's not going to be painful. It's not going to be like a shot in the arm or, or ripping off the band-aid. It's going to be quick and painless. He says it's going to be like sleep. At the end of the world, when we or excuse me, when we die, uh, Paul says that we are going to be like those who fall asleep and wake up at the end of the world. We've already talked in this series about how death is something that we do not fear. In fact, we feel about it the same way we feel about getting into our bed at night. But Paul does this not just to make us feel good about death, but to show us the radical attitude that Christian, Christians have about death. You know, even if you haven't come face to face with death recently, you know that it's an uncomfortable topic. It's uncomfortable to talk about it's uncomfortable to be at funerals. It's uncomfortable because it's not the way things should be. But some of you have, have felt this thing of death very recently. Whether it's a, a grandparent, or it's a brother or sister, or maybe some of you think back a couple years to a loved one that you lost, or even a child that you lost. You know that death is a painful thing. On the surface, it doesn't look as easy as just falling asleep. But what Paul says is is that's the attitude that Christians can have. We can think of those children or that spouse or that grandparent just like we think about them going to sleep. Imagine if you could have that attitude for those of you who have, have lost a child. The same way you think about your child sleeping in your house, you could think about them right now sleeping in death. Peaceful, without a worry. Those of you who lost a spouse, you can think about leaving them in the grave in the same way you thought about letting them go up to bed before you. They'll be fine. They're just resting. Those grandparents, great-grandparents, aunts, uncles, anyone that we've lost, we can look at death with a new face. It's not something scary. It's as calming and beautiful as going to sleep. And the beauty of it is that just like sleep, we wake up on that last day in a flash, in a twinkling of an eye, at the sound of the trumpet, and we will be changed. We'll be changed from the perishable to the imperishable, from the mortal to immortality. That's what Paul says here in verse 54. He says, when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. He says, on that day... Death will be swallowed. And I think Paul chooses that word very carefully because when something is swallowed, it ceases to exist in a sense. Sure, there are remnants that exist somewhere else, but the thing in in its current form goes away. You eat some food. It completely gets mashed up in your teeth and digested and disintegrated. That's what... What Paul wants you to think about when death is swallowed up in victory. On that last day, when all those people come back to life, death won't just be something we remember. It'll be something that is completely erased. Death will be swallowed up, completely consumed by victory. And because Paul understands that that's the power that that Christ's resurrection gives us over death, he starts to mock Death, uh, Kind of like a, a trash-talking athlete, he says, Where, oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? You know, when I was a child, I was terrified of bees. You heard me tell the children this. I, I was so scared I was going to get stung. I would, like, run away screaming and sometimes crying <laughs> whenever I, I saw or heard a bee buzzing near me. And actually, crazily, I never got stung by a bee. I still haven't today. I'm a little bit more calm around bees today, but it's because I know that their sting doesn't last. They can sting, honeybees can at least, one time, and that's it. And even other bees who sting me, that that pain will go away eventually. But I still fear bees. I don't go running and screaming, but I I still am wary of them. Because even though the sting will go away, I I don't want to get hurt. But what, what Paul is saying about death here is that death has no more sting. Death is like a bee that has had its stinger removed, like a common housefly. fly. Annoying, sure, but not painful, not deadly, not something to fear, something to swat away and to keep going on with your day. Because Christ is risen. He is risen Indeed. And on the last day, whether you die here or whether you are one of those who is alive at the coming of Jesus, when we will all be changed, death will be swallowed up in victory. Those who have died in Christ will come back to life and be with us forever with no fear of death ever again. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Paul explains the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul says two things there, and they both need a little bit of unpacking. He says the sting of death is sin. What does he mean by that? He says death is is only painful if you have sin. Now, as Christians, we don't because of what Jesus has done on the cross and the empty grave. But if we didn't have that, then, then death would sting. Because death would be the reminder that we don't matter, that, that we've failed, that we were given this amazing gift of life and all we did was squander it by living selfishly. And now it's over and we can't make up for it. And that's the true sting of death. And if we don't have a savior who came back to life and promised that because he rose, he guaranteed our justification, then that is our lot. But because we do not have sin, because we know that this life is not all that there is, then death has no more sting. Then Paul says the power of sin is the law. In other words, he says, what gets you to death is sin And sin's power lies in the law. Now, the law, when Paul talks about it, are are God's rules, God's blueprint for how life should work. And the power, he says, for sin comes from that law. Now, notice he chooses that word power for sin very carefully. Because he wants us to understand that sin is something we do willfully. Very often we like to believe that sin is something we sort of accidentally do. We sort of happen into it. We didn't really mean it. But what what Paul says here is, no, the death that we deserved to be stung by was powered by our sin, which was in rebellion to the law. In other words, our sinful nature saw the law, the rules of God, and said, no. You know this if you're a parent. There's a difference between when your children disobey one of your rules as an accident and when they disobey one of your rules on purpose. There's a very different interaction that comes between you and your child after each of those scenarios, isn't there? And as much as we'd love to believe that very often we are the ones who, oh, we're just accidentally disobeying God's law. No, no, Paul says the power of sin, in other words, the, the force of sin Comes from seeing the law and actively disobeying it. And that's every one of us. I struggle with this as a Christian in North America, where I've been taught from very early on to believe in myself, to follow my dreams, to be everything that I want to be, that I'm a unique, shining star in the universe, all these sorts of things that I'm sure you've heard as well. It's hard for me to to admit that I'm actually a bad person, that I am wicked by nature, that I am in rebellion against God. But that's what the Bible says. But Paul doesn't let you stay there very long, does he? He says, the sting of death is sin. And you should get that because you know the law and you know you've disobeyed it on purpose. That's your sin. But thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through Jesus Christ, our Lord. We were on the fast track track to losing everything, to being meaningless and pointless in the universe. But, but he gave us the victory through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And because of that, you can know brothers and sisters that you matter because you didn't earn it. In that case, it would depend on your perfect record, and you don't have that. You didn't deserve it. It would mean you'd have to have some merit in yourself. And maybe even though you have done some good things in this life, you have done more than enough evil to make up for it. No, because it is a gift fully given in Jesus, you can count on the fact that you matter. You matter to God. You know this when you receive a gift on your birthday or at Christmas or some other time. You know that that person who gives you the gift is saying to you, you matter enough to me that I'm going to give you this. God gives you the victory. He gives you freedom from the sting of death. He gives you pardon for the sin that you have willfully done against him. Because you matter to him. You know, no other worldview or religion can offer this. Every other worldview, every other God demands something of you, whether it's prayers or money or time or sacrifice. God does not demand any of these things. He is not like your job, which is always asking for more hours. He's not like other people who are asking for money or time or energy. He is not like any other religious figure who demands that you live a certain way in order to please him. No, he gives us the victory. And he gives it to us through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jesus Christ died a death that he did not deserve to die. He was punished in a way that a criminal will be punished. He took all of our sin, all of our guilt, all of our shame to the cross so that God could give us the victory. In every other religious system or worldview, God requires something of you. But in Christianity, brothers and sisters, God gives to you at his own expense, the expense of his own son's life. Now, I know that you out there are discouraged for 101 different reasons at different times. Some of them, some of the reasons you're discouraged are related to relationships. Some of you are discouraged because of things having to do with money or work or mental struggles or loneliness, and the list goes on. But what I want you to hear right now from this text is that God says all of those things are death trying to sting you, but death no longer has its sting. You have been given the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. Death is a swarm of bumblebees that have been de stingered. They can't harm you. They can't hurt you because God has eternally unequivocally said, you matter. And that means that the little stuff you do day to day, it matters. It may feel like little stuff. It may feel like no one notices. It may even feel like no one cares. But what Jesus is saying through this text is that he cares and it matters. The hours you spent on the front lines fighting COVID-19, they matter. Because those people are people that Jesus died for. The diapers you change at home, they matter. Because that child is someone Jesus died for. The garbage that you take out, it matters. Because keeping your house clean for those who live in it is being a good manager of the life that God gave to those people and to you. Everything from the big things to the little things, they all matter because this life, it goes on. But perfect, changed in a flash, in a twinkling of an eye, when the victory that Jesus has won for us is realized and we are all brought to be with him forever. So Paul has an encouragement for us. And this is the last verse of the text, and I want to take some time and meditate on these words with you. Paul says, therefore, my, brother, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm, let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. So there's two things that Paul wants you to do in this text. He says, first of all, stand firm and let nothing move you. And on the other hand, he says, always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord. Now, on face value, those almost look like two different things. He says, stay still. And then he says, get moving. And I think if we start to understand the fullness of both of those commands from the Apostle Paul, we start to get a picture into his theology and the beauty of the Christian message of the resurrection. So let's break down each one of them. First of all, he says, stand firm, let nothing move you. Now to illustrate this, this is gonna be a little bit crazy, but I'm not going to talk for a whole minute I bet you were wondering if I was going to do it. (laughs) What were you thinking about during that minute? You're wondering, is he really doing this for a whole minute? (laughs) Maybe some of you were wondering what you're going to do after church. Maybe some of you who were maybe not paying attention to the screen suddenly tried to check if the sound had gone out. (laughs) Maybe some of you got up and refilled your coffee. I, I don't know. But here's what I want you to see, that it's really hard for us to stay in one place and do nothing. When the Bible talks about standing firm, when it talks about things like that beautiful passage from Psalm 46, to be still, I wonder if we don't try to change what the Bible says a little bit. We say, we hear, be still. And we think, oh, well, what he means by that is, like, be peaceful. Like, don't get too anxious about stuff. Maybe. But what if he literally meant sometimes we just need to be still? You see a text like this, stand firm, let nothing move you. And we think, what he means is just be strong in the things that you already believe. Yeah, that's true. But what if he meant... Just stop moving for a little while. One of the hardest things about the Christian faith is the lack of work necessary to earn God's favor. It's something that every Christian struggles with at one point or another. I have struggled with it in my life, and I still struggle with it regularly. To actually believe what the gospel teaches, that everything that I need in Christ is already done for me. There is nothing left to do. It is finished that's hard. I'm like you. I want to think of the next thing to do. What's the next thing? What's the next program? What's the next idea? What's the next sermon? What's the next Bible study? What's the next call? What's the next thing? And you know, we start to build up our own reputation, our our own self-worth on those things. When God says, stand firm, let nothing move you. The same message that was true 1975 years ago when Paul wrote these words is still true right now. It's still as much the reality. There's nothing to change. There's nothing to add. Just stand firm. I wonder if we all need a lesson in standing firm, in letting nothing move us, in not being attracted by the latest wisp of the culture The latest idea, the latest report, the latest thing that someone's talking about. If we just need to stay still and rest in the fact that God has already done all of it for us. I want you to think about it like this. Let's say you knew Jesus was going to come back in 10 minutes. That that moment that Paul was talking about in 10 minutes, it was going to happen. How would you spend the next 10 minutes? Knowing that the new heavens and the new earth, which are going to contain things far better than what is around you right now, is coming in 10 minutes. Would you try to enjoy this world a little more? Or would you just sit still and wait for it to come? I hope that I would be one of those who would just sit still. And so I pray that in all of our hearts, we have worked the realization that Jesus is going to come back. And it could be any minute or any year or any century. But if we really believe it, then, then we just rest in the fact that all the work that needs to be done is done. There's nothing left for us to do. We can simply live our lives in the freedom of everything being done. You know that feeling you get when You may be cleaning a part of your house or you have a project in the garage and it gets done and you can look over it and it looks beautiful exactly the way that you wanted it. That's the Christian faith. You right now, whether you've been a Christian for five minutes or five decades, you are a finished product in God's eyes. Everything has been done for you. So stand firm, let nothing move you and then get moving. Paul says here that we ought to give ourselves fully to the work of the Lord. In other words, do the work of the Lord, not because you have to, not because you should, but because you have the chance to give yourself fully to it. And you think about your job right now. Your job is not something you give yourself fully to. For a couple hours a day, you maybe give yourself fully to it, but you do other things during your life. You watch Netflix, you eat meals, you talk to your friends or your family, you do all sorts of things in your life. You never give yourself fully to your work, but Paul says, because you know that everything is done for you already, you can give yourself fully to the work of the Lord. You can make every moment from your job to your home life completely filled with Christ. First filled with the fact that Christ has said, you matter so much that I'm going to die for you, come back to life, and guarantee that you're going to live forever. And so your very existence in your physical body right now is so important to me that I'm going to keep it going, even into eternity. You can live with that comfort first and foremost, but then you can live knowing that that message is going to convert people's hearts so that they believe in this message and also live forever with you. And whether you're at work or at home, you can let those words be on your lips, those actions be coming out of your hands. You can live give yourself actually fully to the work of the Lord. Not because you have to, but because you get to. You remember those guys who were sitting on the edge of Antarctica waiting for Ernest Shackleton to come back? What do you think they thought about or did while they were waiting? I think the story about Ernest Shackleton is so interesting to me because in many ways it parallels what, what we feel like as we wait for Jesus to come back for that last trumpet call. You know, I looked up uh, some of the diaries of some of those men who were on Antarctica with Ernest Shackleton and uh, here are some of the quotes of what they wrote about those days in Antarctica while they were waiting for Ernest to come back. One man wrote, Life here without a hut and equipment is almost beyond endurance. Another man said, such an inhospitable coast I have never beheld before. Uh, another man said, I think I spent this morning or this morning the most unhappy hour of my life. <laughs> another man said, and all attempts seem so hopeless. So passes another rotten day. And one more man wrote, men sat and cursed this island. You know, I look at those words and I think to myself, isn't that how we often think about this world? We end up at the end of our days saying, so passes another rotten day. How many of us have said, I think this morning I spent the most unhappy hour of my life? How many of us have thought this life just seems inhospitable to me? It's because we're waiting for that salvation of Jesus to come back, but he's not here yet. Do you know what got those men through that time in Antarctica? It was one of the other men who was on the, on the crew. His name was Frank Wilde, and he sort of assumed the position of leader of the group while Ernest Shackleton was away trying to get to South Georgia. Uh, Wilde wrote this in his diary. He wrote, some of the party have become despondent and were in a what's the use sort of mood and had to be driven to work, none too gently either. See, what Wilde did is he would actually create a routine for these men while they were living on the island to keep them sort of engaged with life. So he'd get them up at 9.30 every morning to do chores and to go hunting. He would greet them with these same words every day. He'd say, get your things ready, boys. The boss may come today. (laughs) At the end of the day, Uh, They would end by writing stories and telling those stories to each other and they would sing songs together. So why do I tell you all this? Because in many ways, I think Frank Wild was doing exactly what we should do for each other while we wait for Jesus. Everything's been done for us already. In the same way that those men had no control over when or if Ernest Shackleton would come back. We have no control over when Jesus will come back. Now the beauty of our situation over theirs is is that we know Jesus is going to come back because he promised and he can. While those men had to wait in the ambiguity of whether Ernest Shackleton would come back. But Frank Wilde kept those people busy so that they wouldn't lose hope in those moments. In the same way, we as Christians Ought to keep each other busy, to keep ourselves in in solid spiritual routines, where we take the time regularly to be in God's Word, to be in prayer, to be around other people, to give ourselves fully to the work of the Lord, to sing songs with each other, tell stories to one another about the great things that Jesus has done in our life, because nothing we do is going to change our eternity. That's dependent on Jesus. But right now, there are people who need encouragement. There are people who need us present with them. We have the chance to all be Frank Wilds. We have the, one, we have the chance to be the ones who step into each other's life to help. And so I'm asking you, how are you being Frank Wild? For some of you, it, it might be in a scriptural way. You're the type of person who is intellectual about the Bible. You have scripture verses memorized and you're able to share those scriptures with people who need to hear them. Maybe you can send some of our fellow Cross of Life people a text this week or an email or give them a call and let them know about God's promises about them. Maybe you can take the time to study the scriptures with another person. Or to organize a Bible study via Zoom or Google Hangouts. Maybe some of you aren't like that. Maybe some of you are interactive people. You need that social connection. There are people in our congregation and in the world right now who need that also. Maybe you can be the one who calls them just to chat. Or sends an email just trying to get to know somebody. Maybe you're one who can provide something, a service Or maybe a a little gift to some of our members who don't have someone else living in the house with them. Those sorts of social interactions can keep Christians going as we wait for Jesus to come back. Maybe some of you are prayers. You love to be in prayer with God. You're in a good habit. You have time in your day. Keep doing that. Maybe bring somebody else along. Say, I'm going to call you every day at 930 And we're going to pray together. Maybe some of you are gifted financially. You're in a financially stable situation. Or you have resources that could be used to help other people during this pandemic time. Maybe it's time to use those resources. We have a form that I sent out and I will send out again. That allows us to all think about how can we serve one another during this pandemic. Those men needed Frank Wilde. They knew their hope was in Ernest Shackleton, but they needed that man to keep them going while they waited. Brothers and sisters, your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Whether it's something big or it's something little, whether it's something personal or something corporate, those things matter. Your labor in the Lord that you give yourself fully to every day, it matters. It's not in vain. Months later, Ernest Shackleton actually did make it back to Antarctica. His journey was absolutely crazy. I encourage you to look up his story, but for the sake of time, he got back and he got the men and he landed back in Chile. And when he landed, he wrote this to his wife Shackleton wrote, I've done it, not a life lost, and we've been through hell. Soon I will be home and then I will rest. Does that sound familiar? It sounds kind of like what we read from Jesus last week from John chapter 6. Do you remember the words? Jesus wrote, I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up on the last day. <laughs> See, Jesus was was doing what Ernest Shackleton was doing it in 1914 on the cross and at the empty tomb and someday he will complete the work and he will come back. Instead of saying, I've done it, not a life lost and we've been through hell, Jesus said, it is finished. Not one of those the Father has given me is lost and I've been through hell. Instead of saying, soon I will be home and then I will rest, Jesus says, soon I will bring them home and then we will rest. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is coming. Your captain is coming back. And whether it is a short time or a long time, it will come in the flash and a twinkling of the eye. The trumpet will sound and we will be changed. So stand firm. Let nothing move you. And until Jesus comes, always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord, because you know your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Amen.